I've got a question for you tonight. Can we have a bit of a dialogue, not just a monologue? Not much of a dialogue now. I don't want too much, but I do have a question for you. Why did God save me? Why did God save you? Okay, very quickly. Oh, okay. He saved us because He loved us? Where'd you find that? (laughs) In the Bible, of course. Saved us because He loved us. That's the answer I get 99% of the time. To glorify for His own great namesake. What else? Why did He save us? Yes, He did. He did, but why? He loved us, needed workers, so we could worship Him, wanted fellowship. A little louder, Sonia. He created us. Give Him glory. Absolutely wonderful answers, but they're just not right. (laughs) What you're doing, you're you're answering, what was his motive? And as to motive, your answers are absolutely right. They're all correct. That's his motive. That's, he was motivated to save us, number one, we were lost. He loved us, and on and on and on and on. But that's not the question I'm asking. Okay, those are good, but that's not where I'm going. I'm not asking motivation, why? I'm not asking why in the sense of motivation, what motivated him to save I'm asking the question, why did he save us? What was his objective? His objective, okay, we... Okay, when when you're digging a hole, quit digging. (laughs) Why did he save us? As to motive, not not motive, objective. Let me help you out. Anybody here here raise kids? Anybody here still raising kids? We're trying. You have my sympathies, I get it. Who's trying to raise them? Okay, back here. How many, you got big kids, little kids? Five. Five. 17 to 14 months old. Come forward, we'll have prayer for you right now. <laughs> you and your wife, I know, are doing a great job raising your family. I'm positive of that. I, well, I hope that's true. I'm, I'm sure it is. Thank you. You kind of echoed that. Raising your kids, do you have some objectives for them? Okay. What's one? Just give me one objective you'd really like to see in your children. Just one. Okay, you want them to be grateful. Who in the world likes ungrateful, entitled kids? Nobody. Anybody, any other parent around here, you have some objectives for your kids? You have, as Ruth and I, we were, we were old Southerners. Don't hold that against us. But we're in Alabama, in the Southern tradition, telling the truth and being respectful is big yes. stuff. You respect your elders. They always went first. You came last. 
So we raised our boys to tell us the truth and to be with that was a couple, just a couple of our objectives. Are you tracking with me now? Now, where in the world would you and I as parents come up with such an idea that we actually want our children to be grateful, to be honest, to be good, to be kind, to be hardworking, to be respectful? We came up with that, not on our own initiative, but because we're created in the image of God. And God has something in mind for us. And you don't have to guess because the Bible tells us what he's got in mind. His primary, ultimate objective. Now, let me quiz you just a little more then I'm going to get busy here. There's many ways to find that objective out. How many times in the Bible are we, are, is the human race commanded to procreate and fill up the earth? How many times? Once. How many times in all four gospel is the command to be born again given? Hello? How many times? Oh, for crying out loud, aren't you? Don't you people go to church? Huh? How many times? How many? Once. How many times is the Great Commission? Important command to the church. How many times is that given in the New Testament? Once. You're a fast learner. Once. But God has an objective for us. That objective, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, we get a glimpse. It's a rare glimpse. But God pulls the curtains of eternity past open. You and I have a chance to look as far back into eternity past as humanly possible. We are there and we can listen to the Trinitarian Council as they decide what they want for these men and women God's going to create. Paul tells us, he said, God chose us. He predestined us before the foundations of the world was ever laid. That you and I would be holy and blameless before him. Now we know that. But let me, let me push it one step further. Do you know how many times in this book God's suggestion, God's command, God's revelation of His holiness, our holiness, His desire for us to be held? You know how many times that's given in this book? <laughs> your, your favorite color is plaid, right? Yeah. More than once. It's given between seven and eight hundred times. God is deeply interested. I think it's very fair to say his primary objective for you and I is that we be holy. Most people think, well, he just wants us to get there. No, God's, God certainly wants to spend eternity with us, but his primary objective isn't just getting you to heaven. His primary objective is that you and I are holy. Now, if God mentions it that many times, if it's that paramount of a burden, even, even, a, even Billy Graham, who comes from the Reformed tradition, would say that the sanctification of the church is the paramount burden of the whole New Testament. And he's right. 
You can't read the thrust and passion of Paul without Paul, one of those prayers, praying that we might be filled with all the fullness of God, that God might sanctify us through and through. Even Jesus in his final prayer said, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. God wants you and I to be holy. Now, if holiness is that important to God, I think I want to know what it's all about. That every question ought to, if that's God's objective, shouldn't it be my objective? I know you're a little bit hesitant on that one. If it's God's primary objective for me to be a holy man, shouldn't I have some interest in it? Okay, now you're coming. Well, of course. If it's his primary objective, it should be my primary objective. But I need to know what I'm pursuing. I need to know what it is he wants. When when we talk about holiness, what in the world is the Bible talking about? I'm not interested in my opinion or your opinion. I'm interested in this opinion. What does the Bible say when it talks about holiness? That's why I like the term scriptural holiness. I was in India many years ago and uh, the missionary brought brought me over and said, I want you to talk to 500 pastors. They're they're uneducated, they don't have any formal training and I want you to talk to them about holiness. He said, this is what he said though. He said, you're gonna have to leave your 18 cylinder words at home and all your theological terminology and just use the Bible. What a novel thought. (laughs) Just use the Bible. Great place. So what is scriptural holiness? When the Bible talks about he wants you and I to be holy, be ye holy, for the Lord your God is holy. What's he talking about? Well, anybody here do jigsaw puzzles? You did? Sheila, you did jigsaw puzzles? Big ones? Thousand pieces? Wow. Well, if you do jigsaw puzzles... You quickly get the understanding it's not about just one piece. It takes all of them to make the full picture. And so you just can't approach the Bible with a simple definition of holiness. There are several components that make up the picture of what holiness is. The first component that you have to understand, the very root word of both holiness in Hebrew and Greek, carries this idea of separation. Being separated unto God. Actually, it's not just a single idea in separation, but here again, it kind of breaks open into three phases. It means we are separated unto God for a purpose and from sin. Or we might better say it, separated unto God from sin for a purpose. You have to have all three of those. You don't have the perfect picture of separation. Now, Sheila, you answered, so I'm going to pick on you just a moment. Your husband's name is, is it Rod? Jim. Jim. Okay. My apologies to Rod. I don't do that with Jim. <laughs> you and Jim were married how many years ago? Five years. Five years ago. I'm assuming you had a ceremony of some sort? We did. Okay. Preacher? Oh, Brother Tony. Well, he tied the knot well, I'm sure. And you stood before him, and what if in the middle of that ceremony, just before you said, I do, Jim would have said, Sheila, there, uh, there were two or three-year-old girls in high school that I really, we just, we just, we've been friends all through the years. I just love to kind of have, once a quarter, I'd like to take each one of them out. 
You okay with that? Of course not. That's why we call it holy matrimony. We separate ourselves to that one person. And when we talk about scriptural holiness, we're talking about we are separated unto God. The idols are gone. The other love for the world is we are His and His alone. Yes. Amen? Yes. Separated unto God from sin. Yes. The very idea of holiness is moral excellence. The very substance of it is that. And so... God wants to separate us unto himself from willful, knowing sin, separated for a purpose. Yes. Now that purpose was given in Leviticus. It's repeated in Peter. He said he has called us out. He has made us a kingdom of priests that you and I might show forth the excellencies of him who's called us out of darkness into marvelous light. Tim indicated a moment ago. We've been separated unto God from sin for a purpose. That's the first component. But the second component carries the idea of sanctification. The word sanctification just means the process of being made holy. And the biggest hindrance to holiness is sin. And so guess what? God's going to talk to you about sin in your life, right? It's getting real quiet. Keep the amens coming. It's okay. We'll pause let you breathe later. <laughs> sanctification is the process of being made holy. In the New Testament, sanctification is in three tenses. It's in the past tense, the present tense, and in the future tense. In the past tense, it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 where it talks about to the Corinthians, that carnal, immature group of people, he said, you have been sanctified in Jesus Christ. That's in the past tense. That means the moment you were converted, you were set apart. Yes. Your sins were old, were washed away, Amen. and you are now in Christ. It's in the past tense. It's also in the present tense. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, it says, To those who are being sanctified. It's progressive sanctification. It means that as I walk in the light, as he is in the light, guess what? He talks to me about some stuff. He say, now, Avery, you don't need to be doing that anymore. And I say, yes, Lord, that's, that you're right. And I'm done. Paul talks, he uses it in language like this. He talks about putting on the new man and putting off the old man. Amen? That's, that's in the present tense. But it's also in the future tense. In John chapter 17, verse 17, Jesus said, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. So sanctification is that process of God making us holy. That's another component. The, the third component is what we call the source of holiness. Let me try to illustrate this. I was pastoring back in the 80s, and, and uh, I had a lady that was rather, uh, rather outspoken. Okay? The best, kindest way I know to say it. And I was getting a lot of new people in church. And that made her very uncomfortable. You know that makes some people uncomfortable? I don't know why. But anyway, 
It did. A lot of new people were coming. We were visiting. People were getting saved, and they were coming. And all of a sudden, one Sunday morning before I got up to preach, she didn't ask. She didn't raise her hand. She didn't do anything. She just stood up and said, I want to testify. Boy, that sent cold chills up my spine. I never knew what that woman would say. So she stood up, and she kind of looked around the congregation. And she said, I want you to know I'm a holy woman. I don't advise that, saying it like that. But anyway, I'm a holy woman. I don't do this, and I don't do that, and I don't go here, and I don't go there, and I don't say this, and I don't say that. But she filled in the blanks. And then she concluded her testimony with, I'm a holy woman, and sat out. Now, I'm not God, and I'm not judging her heart. You know? That's between her and God about the holy, the holy stuff, but... I want to tell you one thing. She had her head screwed all wrong. That's for sure. Because holiness is not self-originating. You don't make yourself holy. It's not what you put on or take off. It's not what you say or don't say. It's not where you go or don't go. Now, holy people are obedient people. Holy people try their best to obey this book and obey this book. But holiness is not self-originated. Right. Your righteousness and my righteousness is like filthy rags. Amen. We are only holy as we are connected to the That's Holy true. One. Amen. That is true holiness. Amen. It's like the vine or the branch in the vine, he said in John 15. It's being in Christ, connected to Him. It's His holiness. My righteousness is an alien righteousness. My holiness is only holiness that I draw from Him. It's my connection to Him. That's the source of yes. holiness. Amen? Amen. Yes. That does not mean I can live any way I want to and say, well, I'm in Christ. That's nonsense. No. But it's not self-originating. It only comes through the power of the Holy Spirit yes. dwelling in me. It's only He that enables me to live a life Fully pleasing to God as possible. So the source. But there's a fourth component. And that fourth component I call sharing. And those first three, you have to have all four of those, and I'll tell you what the sharing means in a minute. You have to have all four of those to get the full picture. And the sharing component is that we share in the character and image of Christ. All through the New Testament, Paul makes it clear that you might be conformed to the image of Christ. If you wanted to see what a holiness looked like in shoe leather, what would it look like? It looked like Christ. A great Anglican statement, John R. W. Stott, one of the greatest scholars and worldwide statesmen who's now deceased, but Stott, who was a conservative, godly man who wrote on this subject often, he said, holiness is nothing more than spirit-wrought, word-taught, Christ-likeness. Holiness equals Christ-likeness. So when God wanted us to see what true holiness was like, His very own Son laid aside His heavenly garb, wrapped Himself in our human flesh, Born in a stable, under a star, on straw, walked yeah. among us. And we could see what holiness looks like. 
and close. Right here. You say, Brother Abe, that didn't help me a bit just to say holiness is Christ-likeness. I didn't know him. I never met him. What, what's that look like? Well, I don't mean personality. Every picture you see of Jesus, he looks like somebody who's got this valium-laced temperament, just kind of kind of solemn looking. I don't believe he looked like that at all. I believe he had a massive smile all over his face. But I also believe that it's not his personality. I remember as a kid, we had a conference president who was just the most easygoing, jolly kind of guy. And I used to think, man, if I'm going to be a true man of God, I've got I to gotta act like him. Well, that's just personality. Some people think real saintly holy people are just calm and easygoing and never raise their voice, never anything. If a rattlesnake was crawling up the middle of this aisle, it'd go right between my legs and I would say, my, my, there goes a rattlesnake. That's personality. I'm not talking about personality. I'm telling what I'm talking about. I'm talking about character. That's exactly what God is interested in, our character. And when we talk about Christ-likeness, we're not talking about how you smile, how you don't smile. How you, we're talking about character. And when you walk through the Gospels, you pick up the character. When you plow through the epistles, you pick up the character. And there are four primary components of his character <coughs> that should be manifested in us and can be by God's grace. What's the first one? Well, the first one is foremost, it's self-giving love. The very essence of, of God is love, holy love, self-giving love. And that's exactly what should be manifested in our lives. You say, Brother Abby, that's a, <coughs> that's a standard way too high. Well, how many of you mothers know what it means to nurse a really sick baby? Anybody here? Anybody here know what it means to nurse a really sick baby? Did you raise your hand? A really sick baby. So you had one, I take it. Okay. Well, the point I'm making is when you've got that little one and you're caring for them and you're nursing them and they're sick or whatever, you are pouring yourself into them. You don't think about yourself. You don't think about your sleep. You don't think about how my hair looks. You don't think about this. You don't think. All you think about is them. You're pouring your life. That is self-giving love. How many of you men have worked for 30 and 40 and 50 years at a job that wasn't exactly glorious? You, you, you did it. Anybody? No, no hands, but... Some of you men have got up very early before the sun rose every morning. You've driven a long distance. You've worked in factories and offices all day long and driven home and got home after dark only to do it over again the next day and the next day. What were you doing it for? It wasn't to get a bass boat. It wasn't to get a bigger house. Well, there are those who do that. And they're just self-centered jerks. What they are. But... It wasn't for that. It was to put a food on that table, a roof over my family, clothes on their back, education in their lives, medical care for, their, for them. You were pouring yourself out 
that you could pour it into somebody else. That is self-giving love. It's an others-oriented love. And that's exactly what Christ-likeness looks like. It's an others-oriented love. It's not about me. It's about others. But it's also obedience. It's interesting. I challenge you to go to your, your Gospels. Go through there and look at every time Jesus said something like this. He said, I have not come to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Not my will, but thine be done. On my own, I can do nothing. Over and up. He learned obedience through the things that he suffered. Obedience. Can you obey the Lord? Now, folks, it's a real, a little quiet in here tonight. Well, can you or not? Amen. We're called to obey. As a matter of fact, that obedience can be easy and relaxed. Obedience. Amen? That's a component of Christ's life. Another component is what's called blamelessness. Jesus said, who in the world can convict me of sin? Well, unfortunately, you and I will never say that. Because... In this life, we don't possess what might be called sinless perfection. We don't, we don't know that yet. But I'll tell you what we do know. And Paul made this very, very clear. He said, you can follow me as I have followed Christ. He said, look and see how holy and blameless I behave myself. Over and again, that's what we're called to. We're called to blamelessness. What in the world is blamelessness? A thing, when a thing is as it ought to be, it's considered blameless. Amen? Yeah. That's, that's the language of the New Testament. God wants you and I to be blameless. He wants us to walk worthy of the gospel. He wants us to live fully pleasing to the Lord. I'm just using biblical language. Yeah. That's what he wants. Yeah. Now, what does that mean? Let me see who I dare pick on here tonight. I'll pick on, I think this is the other evangelist back here. Never met him before. Nathan? Yeah, that's him. <coughs> Nathan, have you sinned since you walked through that door tonight? I don't believe so. <laughs> no. He's weighing that. Well, if God can keep you for an hour and an hour, you think he can keep you for two? If he can keep you for two, can he keep you for four? You get the point? The point I'm making here is this. The Bible uses the term perfection. That scares people spitless. All grow up and just look at it dead in the face. It's not talking about angelic perfection or divine perfection or Adamic perfection or either of those other kinds. It's talking about biblical perfection, Christian perfection, as the tradition calls it. What is that? What is it? In our tradition, we would call it Wesleyan perfection. What in the world is that? Well, it's just what I described. That you and I, through the power of the Holy Spirit, can in fact, moment by moment, walk with Him and be enabled, be enabled by the Spirit to please Him. 
moment by moment. As we yield, as we walk in the light, as He is in the light, as we submit and surrender to Him, we can live in a life that is fully pleasing to Him. Yes. Amen. So go yank that bumper sticker off your car that says, forgiven but not perfect. That sometimes those are nothing but excuses to live in sin. No, we can. We can by God's grace. Are you hearing me? By God's grace, we can, in fact, live pleasing to our Lord. Man, the fourth component of Christ's likeness is dependence on Him. I talked to you last night about what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. If we, since we live in the Spirit, or it really should be translated not if, but since, since we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. And if we walk in the Spirit, Paul said, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh, but you will fulfill the law of love. So you and I are totally dependent. Here's the deal. When you strike out on your own, you're in trouble. You're just in trouble. But as you remain attached to the vine, as you live in Him, as you draw your life from Him, as you live and walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, you can live a life that's pleasing to God. You say, I don't know about that. Any of you kids over here know who Michael Jordan is? Who's the best basketball player in the church? Justin, you are? In the church. Ah, you didn't let me finish it. I thought, well, is he the best basketball player? Who's the best basketball player? Huh? In the church? Yeah. We're not going to vote tonight, huh? All right. Uh, let, tell me your name again. Red shirt. Abram. Abram? That's a great name. Let's say you're the best basketball player in the whole church. Well, you're good. I'm six to seven. We're going we're gonna to hit the court right after church. I'm going to take you on, bud. But you aren't worried one bit, are you? No. Didn't think so. However, if I said the spirit of Michael Jordan has come upon me, then it'd be a different story, right? You'd be super worried. Well... That hasn't happened to me, but I'll tell you what has happened to all of us. The Spirit of God Amen. has come to live in our hearts. Yes, thank the Lord. And that makes all the difference in the world. Amen. Yes. So that's what Christ-likeness Look, Here's what holiness, the components of holiness. Holiness equals Christ-likeness. You say all of that's wonderful and good, but how do you get there? How do you get there? How does this happen? How does it work its way out in our life? Well, it begins the moment you, have, you are born again. Yeah. That very moment. What we're, theologians call it being initially sanctified, being regenerated. That, and this Holy Spirit moves inside. He dwells with us. That very moment. But beyond our conversion, the Bible talks about some, some post-conversion things. And there are three P's in the New Testament that are extremely important to every Christian. And every one of them have been prayed for five-star Christians. And the first one is to the Hebrews. He told those Hebrew Christians to pursue 
holiness. Anybody here deer hunter? Hunt deer? You got any big time deer hunters here? You guys don't play basketball. You don't hunt. You don't do anything. You a deer hunter back there? Nobody hunts deer? Who? Okay, Tim. Open up, man. Don't sit over there like that. Stump. Oh, I'm sorry. I apologize. Sort of. You hunt big time deer hunter? Bow and arrow? Crossbow? Shotgun? Rifles? Camouflage? Tree stands? Stink and all that stuff you spray? Cameras and that kind of stuff? Okay. Kim, does he get up at early in the morning, sometimes 3, 4 o'clock to go deer hunt? He used to get so excited about it that he got sick. Couldn't even sleep. You got the point. These guys will get up at 3, 4 o'clock in the morning. They'll spray themselves with skunk scent or whatever that is. Put on weird clothes and crossbows and, all, and climb trees and, and get up there and sit in freezing cold weather just to get a buck. Nothing wrong with it, by the way. Nothing wrong with it. But the word pursue comes out of the Greek for the hunt. It's the hound pursuing the rabbit. And he's doing it with everything in him. And that's what Paul says to you and I, pursue holiness. Like Tim would pursue a deer or somebody, the hound would pursue a rabbit. (coughs) It uses the word put on, put off. What does that mean? It means that you and I, as growing, pursuing Christians, we walk in the light of God. And as we walk in the light, I'm almost scared to tell you this story, but I, it's been so long since I've seen it. I was in a church of, of 2,400 just a few months ago out in Idaho. And I've never seen so many broken people get saved in my life. It's the most amazing thing I've ever witnessed. And I was in a service. I was out there for a Deeper Life conference, and I was in one of those services, and the guy said, I've just got to testify. He's an old Marine. His home was all broken, and he, he got saved, got, <coughs> got his marriage back together start coming, start growing, start leading a men's group. And this is what he said. He said, just the other night I was praying. And he said, God began to talk to me about that little round thing in my back pocket. Now does that, does that panic? Anybody going to panic over that? You going to panic? Let's go that round stuff. He pulled, he said, God began to talk to me about that. He said, son, you don't need that. You don't need to be addicted to anything and just lay it aside. Now, if you've got some in your back pocket and you want to chew it, chew it. Just, just keep your mouth clean. <laughs> but that's what he said. I thought, now that's, that's, how, that's as he was growing and walking in the light, God began to talk to him. Yes. And that's what we mean by putting on, putting off. As God begins to speak to you, He will work in your life and talk to you about areas of your life, things in your life that shouldn't be. He'll just put His finger here or there as you walk in the light. Amen. But it also is another P. It's called present. In Romans chapter 12, as Paul takes a theological... Literally, he's climbing a theological Himalaya all the way through that book. But he gets to chapter 12. <coughs> he moves away from theology. 
to the ethical ramifications of all these things. And he turns inward. And then the rest of the book flows outward to others. But at the peak in Romans 12.1, he said, I beseech you therefore, brethren. These are Christians he's talking. I beseech thee, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. He's talking about, he's using Old Testament. He's talking to Hebrew people, who Jewish people who knew what he meant. He meant you need to get it all on the altar. Every bit of it. All of it. Present your bodies. We send with our hands, our tongues, our mouth, our feet. Our, he said, now I want them all up on this altar. Yeah, yeah. I want you to give them all to God. Yeah. Romans chapter 6, he said something very similar to the Romans. He said, present yourselves as slaves to righteousness unto holiness. And there he's not using the altar terminology. He's using the love slave terminology in the Old Testament Remember the Old Testament? If a Hebrew got into debt and made some bad deals and he could, he, and a fellow Hebrew would buy the debt, he would become a servant, become a slave. And he had to be a slave for seven years or until the year of Jubilee, whichever came first. Then he'd be set free. But he said, if you don't want to be set free and you, want, you love your master and you want to stay in his household, there's a little, there's a little procedure you go through. He said, you go to the, you go to the doorpost you take a nail and a hammer, you put this little lobe of your ear, put it right up on that doorpost, drive that nail through it, and you'll be a love slave to him forever. You'll never go out and you'll never come back in. You're his forever, a love slave. And that's exactly what Paul is saying. He's saying, I want you to be a love slave to yeah. Jesus Christ. I want you to give him everything lock, stock, and peril. Yeah. This isn't just about punching your ticket to get to heaven. It's about giving God everything in full, total surrender so that he can develop your character and make you the kind of man and woman that can be a blessing to the kingdom of God right here and now. But not everybody goes there. You say, what kind of strange teaching is that? Well, it's kind of universal in a way. Billy Graham, if you read his book, Just As I Am, talks about the time after he started his ministry. He said, I remember going out into the mountains in North Carolina by an old stump. And he said, I settled it there that I would not please men. I would not do what this one and this one... I would fully surrender and do whatever God wanted me to do. He said, I made a surrender there so radical it was like a death. I heard Charles Stanley in his book, Be Filled with the Spirit. Now, these are all people in the Reformed tradition. They're not in the holiness tradition. In the Reformed tradition, Charles Stanley said, he's pastoring in North Carolina. He said he realized there was something so deficient in his life. But he went to his study one afternoon and he said, God, I'm not getting it done. There's something wrong with me. And he said, that afternoon in my study, I made a surrender to God and to his spirit like I'd never made before. I heard Chuck Swindoll say the same thing when he was pastoring in Nashville, Tennessee. Ladies and gentlemen, I can tell you that story a hundred times over. I can tell you my own story. 
when Mike Avery needed to get out of the way so God could do something in my life. Any of you ladies ever read this the second best-selling devotional book in the world called Streams in the Desert? Anybody ever read that book? I see a few hands. It's Letty Cowman. You ought to read it. Charles and Letty Cowman were, couldn't have children. They lived in Chicago. He worked for the railroad. She was a school teacher. They were up in their 30s, and we don't know for sure how it happened, but Charles was led to the Lord by someone, and he was converted. He began to pray for his wife, and he, le he actually led his wife to the Lord. They started a, a Bible study in their home, and they began to lead many people to the Lord. And then they both began to feel this call to go to the mission field in Japan, Korea, China, Asia. They had no Bible college training. They had no training whatsoever. But they felt God's call on their heart. A.B. Simpson, some of you would recognize that name, a great missionary statesman, started the uh, a, uh, Christian Missionary Alliance denomination. A.B. Simpson was coming to Chicago for a missions conference at Moody Church. And Charles said to Lady, you know, he said, we've never been to a missionary conference. We ought to go. We ought to go. See what it's like. going to be missionaries. We ought to go. So they did. And A.B. Simpson preached a masterful sermon that night. When he finished, he said, now, folks, this is a mission service. And so, of course, naturally, we're going to take an offering. And he said, but actually, we're going to take four offerings. Well, that got their attention. And this is 1899, okay? They didn't have wristwatches and lots of stuff that we have today. And A.B. Simpson said, the first offering I'm going to take tonight, he said, I noticed a lot of you men had extremely nice gold pocket watches with a long gold chain and a nice little fob on the end. And he said, uh, we've got a jeweler down here. He said, if you'll donate your gold pocket watch to the offering, we've got offering plates full of little silver pocket watches. He said, they work good. We know they're all great. You just take a silver watch and we'll sell the gold ones and give the money to missions. And they started passing those plates full of little silver pocket watches. Letty had bought Charles a very expensive gold watch. They didn't have children. They had extra money. She bought him a beautiful watch. She saw his finger playing with that chain. And when that offering plate came by, he yanked that thing out, dropped it in the offering plate, took out a little silver one, and she said to him, Charles, I gave you that. But it was gone. Given to God. When they finished that, A.B. Simpson stood up again. He said, now the ushers are going to come. He said, I noticed tonight some of you ladies have some jewelry you don't need. And he said, so we're going to pass the offering plate. If you'll put in your jewelry. He said, we got a, a place down here that will the same, the same jeweler buy. Charles had bought Letty. It wasn't her wedding band. It was a very nice, very expensive diamond ring. And she was sitting there like this. And that offering plate came by. Charles reached over, picked up her hand, slid that ring off, and dropped it in the offering plate. She said, Charles, that was mine. But it was gone. And then A.B. Simpson said, now the third offering is if you just want to put in some money. Now, this is 1899. You didn't have debit cards, online giving, credit cards, or anything else. You got paid in a pay envelope. It was cash. Charles had just gotten paid for the last two weeks. It was still in his pocket, never opened it. 
And that offering plate started down their row. She said, I watched Charles reach into his pocket, pull that out, drop the whole thing in, and off it went. I turned to him, I said, Charles, how are we gonna live? But it was gone. Then A.B. Simpson got up. And he said, now ladies and gentlemen, I'm gonna ask you for the hardest gift yet. Who here tonight wants to give themselves totally, completely to God? Letty Cowman said, I knew what Charles was going to do. She said, I knew he's going to get up. I knew he'd walk down to the front. She said, I got left out on the first three. I wasn't going to get left out on that one. And she said, I hooked his arm around mine. He stood up, I stood with him. And she said, we walked that long aisle at Moody Church and we stood down at the front and we told God, he can have everything. He's gonna be boss from here on out. He can have everything. And if you know their story, they went on to start one of the largest mission organizations in the world. They started one of the largest, largest seminaries in the world. And they impacted, multiplied thousands and hundreds of thousands. Chiang Kai-shek read her devotional every day. They touched, they shook the world for God. If you don't know where it started, it's like Jim Elliott. You know Jim Elliott, the missionary who died to the Aki Indians? Someone said, Jim Elliott died on a little river in South America at the hands of the Aka Indians. And his wife said, don't you believe that's not, that's not true at all. Jim Elliott died at the altar at Wheaton Chapel. <coughs> Thank God. Yes. I believe I'm talking to some of the finest people in Licking County. I believe I'm talking to some people who are without any doubt. They're born again. They love the Lord. But I'm also talking to some people who haven't taken their hand off the steering wheel of their life. They've not yet surrendered fully, completely to God. They've not yet let God nail their ear to the door and become his love slave. They have not yet made that full surrender to God. And it could be that some of you, somewhere along the past, you did, but the problem with a living sacrifice, it can crawl off the altar. That's the problem. So what I'm talking about tonight is very intimate. And some of you know exactly. Some of the Holy Spirit's working right now in your heart. You know exactly what you need to do. You know exactly you need to take your hands off. Make that complete surrender. Paul says it's a surrender so radical it's like a death, but you don't die. You don't die. You live, but Christ lives in you. I want you to stand tonight. No music. I don't want any kind of emotional pull or anything else. But tonight, on this Saturday night, there's anybody here that says, you know, Brother Avery, I need to walk that aisle. 
I need to make that kind of surrender to God. I need to sort of take my hands off the steering wheel and let God be God in my life. To let God fully order and direct my life. You say, isn't that scary? <laughs> Absolutely not. It's the greatest thing you'll ever do. Because you're putting yourself in the wisest hands, in the most loving hands there's ever been. With every head bowed, we're not going to wait for long. We're not gonna, I'm not pressing. I'm not pushing. I'm just saying, anybody here, the Holy Spirit got up next to you and said, you, now, tonight. The young, I have a man kneeling over here. Anybody else? I'm just, we're not, you know, I'm not cajoling, cajoling anybody or pressuring anybody. If this is something the Holy Spirit's talking to you about, just do it. There's no use arguing and debating with him. Just, just slip down and let's pray. Anybody else? Is that it? All done? Everybody done. Father, we're so grateful tonight that you opened the door for all of us to not only come to know you and our sins forgiven, but you enable us to come to a place in our lives we can make that full, complete, and total surrender in an intelligent, volitional way and say, God, I want you to be boss. I want you to give direction. I want you to take charge. I want you to run my life. I don't want to do it anymore. We're so grateful for that. And Lord, as we pray with this, our brother over here, we pray your blessing and hand to be upon him. And then as others filter out of this building, we pray you'll go with them and bless them and help them. For Jesus' sake, amen.